This is the Josh Hammer Show. This Monday evening is the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. After all this buildup, after quite literally years of hype, we are finally here. We are finally going to get the voting underway in the Republican presidential primary. We are finally going to start the process in the Hawkeye state of choosing who it is who will take on the doddering dolt from Delaware, the octogenarian senile in chief himself, Joe Biden, or for that matter, whoever the DNC decides to substitute for Joe Biden at the last minute. Will Ron DeSantis pull it off? Can he pull off the upset? That is a million dollar question right now. He has all the endorsements that anyone can ask for there in Iowa. He has the backing of the extremely popular current governor, Kim Reynolds. He has the backing of the most important evangelical leader in Iowa, Bob Vanderplatz. It has not made much of a difference in the polls. But do the polls actually matter? Recall that Iowa is a caucus state. It is not a poll state. Caucuses are infamously difficult to poll. The DeSantis ground game there in Iowa is highly vaunted. It has been much, much publicized over the past five, six months or so. Again, does it actually matter? Or can anyone dethrone Donald Trump, who remains ever popular there in Iowa, ever popular for that matter in Republican circles all across the country? Nikki Haley, of course, is a factor as well. She has been carpet bombing the airwaves there in Des Moines, Iowa, against Ron DeSantis, falsely accusing him of being a China plant. Again, we will see what happens. It is the moment of truth here. But interestingly, our guest who's about to join us, unlike me, is not a DeSantis guy. Our guest coming up here, Will Scharf, is very much a Trump guy. In fact, he is a current Missouri Attorney General candidate. And on the side, he is actually also a current lawyer for Donald Trump. So why are we doing this? Well, it's for a very simple reason. It doesn't actually matter who you support in the Iowa caucuses right now. It doesn't actually matter who you think should be the nominee when it comes to to the left's weaponization of the levers of government, not just against Donald Trump, but against all of us, against all of these so-called deplorables. No matter where you look, guys, if you care about our constitutional structures, if you care about individual freedom, if you care about liberty, justice, the American way, from sea to shining sea, all of the above, you have to be on the same page here. You have to care about what is happening with Alvin Bragg in New York City, what is happening in the Colorado Supreme Court, all of this nonsense there. So without further ado, we're going to take it to a quick commercial break here. We will be joined shortly after the break by my good friend, Will Sharp, current Missouri Attorney General candidate and a lawyer for Donald Trump. We'll be right back. Stay with us. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. 
It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're joined now by Missouri Attorney General candidate, former federal prosecutor, and also currently an attorney for presidential candidate and former president Donald J. Trump. That is my good friend out in the middle of the country, Will Scharf. Will, thanks so much for joining the program here. No, really great to be with you, Josh. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. You bet, of course. So, you know, Will, you and I have been friends for a long time now, and I try not to get in the business of quote unquote, formally endorsing people on the show. But the fact that we are friends and you're here, we co-launched a group called Jews Against Soros together last year. We'll probably get into that a little little later in the program. I'm pretty sure the audience can come to their own conclusions as to where I come down in your current Missouri attorney general race. But let's back up a little bit there because you're not from Missouri originally. You have an interesting biography. You're from New York City. You went to, you know, the most elite of elite institutions imaginable, Princeton, Harvard Law School. And yet you're a Missouri guy. I mean, I've stayed with you. You pick me up in your pickup truck. You wear the cowboy boots. How did you come to adopt the American Midwest and, and the state of Missouri and really just make it your own coming from such an, you know, frankly, an elite East Coast background? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. Uh, it's uh, it, It's been a long, strange trip. You know, as you said, I was born in New York. My family's down in Florida now, has been for a while. Uh, I moved out to Missouri after law school for a clerkship with a federal appeals court judge, outstanding conservative judge named Ray Grunder. Uh, He was on the uh, President Trump's shortlist for the Supreme Court. Uh, So I really just moved out for a job. I was supposed to be here for a year. Twelve years later, I'm still here. Uh, Within a few months of moving here, I just really liked the people. I liked the sense of community. The Midwest just made a lot more sense to me than any of the cities on the East Coast that I'd ever lived in before. Uh, people care about each other. Uh, people know each other. There's just a sense of of community that in larger cities like New York, you just don't get anymore. Um, the politics obviously are m- much uh, much friendlier to someone like me out here than than they are uh, on the East Coast. Um, but yeah, within a few months of moving here, I just sort of decided to make Missouri my home. Uh, practice law here, uh, very conventional sort of big law, uh, big law firm practice, and then uh, fell into politics and and public policy kind of randomly. Um, never thought I'd be running for office. Never thought uh, that would be the path that I'd I'd end up taking. But uh, but I'm just really thankful to be here. I'm proud to call Missouri home, and and uh, Missourians have been very very good to me for a long time now. One of the things that's, that's interesting, Will, is, you know, you've been there for, you know, 10, 11 years or whatever the exact number is at this point. And Missouri itself politically has changed a lot since you first got there. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Missouri, along with Ohio, was really one of the presidential bellwether states in the country. In fact, I think if you looked up on Wikipedia what the literal definition of bellwether state was 10 years ago, probably Missouri would, would have popped up. If I'm not mistaken, that was one of the official or unofficial nicknames of, of Missouri. But it obviously has gone in a, in a very red direction of late. You had Josh Hawley knocking off Claire McCaskill there in the 2018 Senate election was kind of one of the last stands for the Democratic Party there in the show me state. Why don't you talk a little bit about 
what you have seen there on the ground and perhaps how we can extrapolate that a bit to what is happening in America more generally with kind of just ditching the old ways of the Democratic Party? Yeah, you know, it's a really fascinating story. Uh, Until 2008, Missouri had voted with the winner of every presidential election uh, since the time it became a state. Wow. Um, So when you talk about bellwethers, Missouri really was the swing state. Um, That started to change with Obama. Uh, In the early 2000s, um, in state rep and Senate elections, those had started to become nationalized around issues uh, like, uh, you know, pro-life, like the abortion issue, uh, Second Amendment as well. Um, So you started to see a shift at the local level. But nationally, uh, it was this uh, this great swing state. When I first got involved in Missouri politics in the 2016 cycle, Uh, Every statewide office holder, except for the lieutenant governor and I guess one of our senators, um, was a Democrat. We had a Democrat governor. Uh, There were Republican supermajorities in the state House and Senate. uh, But you'd had a a Democrat governor, Jay Nixon, get reelected in 2012 by a a huge margin. Um, And that really just changed in in 2016. Uh, Trump was a big part of that in rural and exurban areas. Uh, Trump won the state in 2016 by 19 points. Um, Interestingly, I think Roy Blunt would have lost that Senate race to a a pretty compelling Democrat candidate named Jason Kander. Uh, Blunt ended up winning by, I think, less than two percentage points. Um, So down ballot, there was a ton of ticket splitting. Um, There were a lot of people who were still willing to to look at Democrat candidates. Um, In the last, uh, last two cycles, though, it's gone even further to the right. Trump uh, for in 2020 won the state by I think it's about 15 points. Every statewide office holder is now a Republican. Uh, it's basically impossible to run in large parts of the state unless you have an R next to your name. Um, the issue that we've seen, though, as a result of that is you have a lot of people who a generation ago would have been Democrats who now run as Republicans but govern like Democrats. Um, and that's a, that's a, a dynamic we've seen in southern states. That's a dynamic we've seen elsewhere uh, where the Republican Party has has become dominant in the last decade. And it's one that's uh, really at the at the crux of Missouri politics now, um, kind of conservatives versus uh, less conservative Republicans. So let's talk about substance. So you have been involved with the rule of law for a long time in all your various capacities. You clerk for a federal judge, former federal prosecutor. You've been very active, actually, in D.C. on multiple Supreme Court nominations. We'll get into that a little bit later in the program, I think, there. But the rule of law itself and the integrity of the rule of law and the necessity of prosecuting bad people and locking people up, I know is something that is very much at the core of what you stand for, what I stand for. That's why, of course, we teamed up last year to found Jews Against Soros, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a movement of Jewish Americans and our, and all of our allies to basically say that George Soros is a terrible person and that to criticize him is not necessarily anti-Semitic. In fact, it is probably the precise opposite of that is actually an affirmative mitzvah. So why don't you talk a little bit about just the importance, Will, from your experience of locking bad people up, for lack of a better way of putting it. You're a former federal prosecutor there. Missouri is kind of an interesting state when you look at it from this perspective, because there have been Soros prosecutors there, of course, in St. Louis and in Missouri. So you have Cori Bush, who's a total left wing, you know, don't lock him up, anti-prosecution nut job right there in St. Louis there. You're running on something approximating the precise opposite platform. What, why don't you kind of paint that 
dichotomy for us there and, and, ex- and explain for the listeners, those per- who perhaps might be a little more uh, libertarian leaning than you or I when it comes to this particular issue, why the rule of law and prosecuting bad people is just so important. Yeah. So part of this is uh, it's confusion among the public on who's in prison and who's prosecuted in America. If you look at the prison population in America, the idea that there are uh, hundreds of thousands of people sitting in prison uh, because of low-level drug offenses, it, it's just not true. Uh, it's never really been true, but it's certainly not true now. Uh, the people who end up serving long sentences in prison are, for the most part, people who absolutely deserve to be there. Uh, persistent, violent criminals, uh, people who, if you cut them out on the streets, are going to keep doing more violent crime. Uh, crime follows a, a very tight Pareto distribution. That's sort of the technical um, statistical term in that a, a very small number of criminals are responsible uh, for a, a huge percentage of crime. Uh, and the further up the value chain you get, the more violent uh, you, you get in terms of in terms of crime, it's fewer and fewer people that are actually responsible. Uh, so for each armed robber that you take off the streets, for each uh, you know gangland shooter that you take off the streets, you're not just punishing them for the crime that they just committed, uh, but you're also incidentally preventing uh, potentially dozens of felonies a year uh, that these people would otherwise be committing on the streets. Uh, so a lot of the work I did in St. Louis, I was in the violent crime unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office here, was gang interdiction, that we would focus on particularly violent street gangs, uh, gangs that we knew were shooting up neighborhoods every week. Uh, and we were targeting the most violent offenders and making sure that we got them off the streets as expeditiously as possible. And those sorts of tactics have been proven to work. Going back to Operation Ceasefire in Boston in the late 80s and 90s, obviously the Giuliani miracle in New York in the 1990s, uh, what we've seen consistently over the last 40 years uh, in American history is that if you take a tough line on crime, if you prosecute violent criminals, uh, crime goes down. And as a result of that, people aren't victimized. The neighborhoods are allowed to uh, to grow and prosper. Kids are allowed to go to school without the specter of violence hanging over their heads. That's how you fix the problem of urban blight in America, is taking this very small number of people who are making American cities unlivable and locking them up. Now, libertarians have a view on, on you know, decriminalization of drugs and that sort of thing. Uh, th- that's really not, not what's at issue here. Um, there aren't people serving extensive terms in prison because they were selling dime bags of weed on the street. That's just not how the law works in America. Uh, so you have this situation where think tanks, both on the libertarian right and on the left, have pushed this idea uh, that the the way forward is is decriminalizing everything is uh, you know so, so-called rehabilitation instead of punishment, uh, which would be great if we had the ability to rehabilitate a lot of these people. But among the more violent criminals, uh, rehabilitation just isn't an option. Uh, so you're left with incapacitation as your your absolute best uh, proven policy approach. Um, that's what I think the conservative right needs to be focused on. Uh, across the country. And I think that's ultimately going to be a path uh, to electoral success for us in, in urban America. You know, when I dealt with crime victims, you know, largely uh, black and, and working class white crime victims in, in St. Louis, I never heard a single one say, I want fewer police officers on the street. Uh, I want the police to be responding less aggressively to street crime. 
Um, that's just not a sentiment that's shared outside of sort of elite ivory tower culture in America. Uh, and I think that's something that we as a movement need to be need to be focused on going forward. Yeah. So I totally agree with you that the libertarian leaning influence when it comes to so-called criminal justice reform probably has been on the decline, at least since the Black Lives Matter riots in the summer of 2020. It probably reached its apex during the signing of the first step back. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to comment on your, you know, on your current boss's former law up there that, that I was certainly a vehement opponent of. But in any event, I agree that the pro-law and order lock them up crowd, broadly speaking, is winning that debate on the right. But in cities just like St. Louis, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, still, I mean, you just get these nut jobs. What does it take, Will? I mean, this is what I find myself just scratching my head. I mean, I've walked around kind of the urban cores of a lot of these cities, St. Louis, where you live among them. You know, a lot of these cities just aren't in great shape, at least when it comes to the downtown areas. I mean, I mean who is voting for this? I mean, you know, H.L. Mencken famously said, if I'm paraphrasing here, that, you know, the voters deserve to get it good and hard. You know, if they vote for it, give it to them. That's what they're getting in a lot of these blue jurisdictions there. So what, if anything, do you think it's going to take for a lot of these urban voters to just wake up when it comes to law enforcement? Yes, I think what you have is this. It's a weird confluence, a political confluence of the far radical Marxist left uh, and then, frankly, suburban elites who all vote Democrat uh, are have have very high voting propensities in Democrat primaries. And when you have off cycle primaries in local elections, uh, they're able to to elect these radical candidates, put them on the ballot. And because the Republican parties become so moribund in urban areas, there isn't a competitive general election. When you look at Cori Bush, Cori Bush got into office. She's a Democrat congresswoman from St. Louis, member of the squad. Uh, I believe probably the dumbest and most vicious member of the squad. She got into office by primarying Lacey Clay, who was an old line sort of machine Democrat in St. Louis, also a, you know, a black Democrat. Uh, she was elected by, you know, again, this radical fringe of sort of progressive activists in the city. Uh, but also by relatively wealthy suburbanites uh, who bought into her radical progressive social agenda, who bought into the idea that, you know, the problem with the Democrat Party is that it wasn't Marxist enough. Uh, and that's how she got elected, which is just insane to think about. Um, long term, I think, you know, the, the, those sorts of policies aren't going to win. I think candidates like Cori Bush are coming under increasing threat in their own districts. But I think it's also incumbent on the Republican Party uh, to really start pushing into urban areas. I think a, a pro-law enforcement, um, pro-educational choice message works among the voting populace there. Uh, and I think that as, as sort of the political winds shift in the next decade or so, there's going to be an opportunity to start competing in areas where we weren't competitive before. Um, the idea of sort of writing off urban America and just letting it burn, um, I, I don't think it's viable, both if we want you know, to, to live in a country that, that functions, um, but also electorally. Uh, as we lose the suburbs, as sort of the suburban world goes increasingly uh, woke, I, I think we have to be pushing into urban areas and making a compelling case that Democrat policies have failed, will continue to fail. And the only alternative is embracing 
uh, traditional values, whether it's on crime, whether it's on education, whether it's on family formation. So I, I very, very strongly agree with you on that. It's something that I've been saying, yelling from the hilltops, you might say, for many years. Now, I actually want to come right back to that, but we're going to have to take it to a quick commercial break here just for a second. We're joined by Will Scharf, current candidate for Missouri Attorney General, former federal prosecutor, and also an attorney for former and potentially future President Donald Trump. Stay with us. We will be right back. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So let's come right back to what we were just talking about, which is this idea that the Republican Party and conservatives in general can't just write off urban America, which I completely agree with you. It's political suicide when it comes to the Electoral College, when it comes to basic political arithmetic, just trying to gather votes. It's also moral suicide. I mean, we don't want to be a people. We don't want to be a movement that is literally just consigning the largest metropolises to hell on earth. I mean, at a fundamental level, is this really our our duty or obligation to our fellow Americans? Americans who perhaps simply because of their family or their job happen to live in like a New York or L.A. It's just the argument fails, I think, on many different levels there. But the, the question, will obviously, is nuts and bolts and, and concrete tactics. How do we do this? And, you know, I think you and I would agree that the playing the identity politics game of just trotting off like a black person to go into like a low income crime ridden community is certainly a terrible idea. That might have been what the Republican consultants circa 2010, 2012 might have said to do. But that's not how to do it. Now, it is interesting that you have seen a bit of a shift politically, polling wise over the past few years, especially in the current data for 2024, where you do see many Hispanics and fewer, but still a fairly decent percentage of black Americans who seem to indicate that they are willing to pull the lever for a Republican candidate. What do you attribute that to? Yeah, so I'd separate those out. When you look at Hispanic America and it's you know, it's probably a category that shouldn't exist. It should be disaggregated because voting patterns of, say, uh, the third generation Mexican-Americans are very different from uh, voting patterns of, let's say, first generation Venezuelan-Americans or Cuban-Americans in Florida or, or what have you. Um, when you look at Hispanic America as a whole, though, uh, as you proceed generationally, Hispanic voting patterns begin to just look like normal American voting patterns. If somebody's parents have been here three generations, they basically vote like their neighbors of whatever race, whatever ethnicity. Uh, when you look at black America, it's an incredible dynamic where the Democrat Party has had this stranglehold on black Americans votes for a very, very long time for for generations. Uh, and we've seen cracks in that in, in the last few years. There are polls that show in a in a head to head matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden uh, Trump actually winning among black men, among black American men. 
Um, and I think at the core of that is just the failure of Democrat policies uh, to to promote um, to promote economic well-being, to promote livability uh, in urban America. I think if trends continue, look, if a Republican candidate for president gets 25 percent of the black vote in America, there is essentially no electoral pathway uh, for a Democrat to win the presidency. It just doesn't work without that voting base. Um, so I think Republicans need to be playing in that field. And we're not going to get a majority of, of black votes in the next cycle. Uh, but long term, the more we compete, the more competitive we are there, the more we're going to see states uh, in terms of the presidential map, uh, states like New Jersey, uh, states like even New York, uh, become competitive in a way they haven't been in a generation or more. Um, to get back to the Hispanic point for a second, when you look at Texas today, uh, the future of, of Texas electorally uh, is in those uh, later generation Hispanic Americans, Hispanic Americans who have been in this country for a long time, who share serious concerns about crime, about the border, uh, about human trafficking and drugs and all the issues that motivate uh, the most rock solid conservatives in the country. Uh, and when you look at the coalition that Ted Cruz is building uh, down in Texas for this this next cycle, when you look at the coalition that's going to return um, return votes, I believe, for President Trump next November in the general election in Texas. Uh, that's the coalition you're seeing is just Americans of all ethnicities, of all races, uh, who are concerned and motivated by the same basic issue set of voting the way that that, that issue set would dictate they should vote. I think, you know, long term, the deracialization of American politics is a really important thing for conservatives to be pursuing. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, in many ways, I think the current trajectory of the Republican Party seems to be getting this right. I mean, you know, the, the Republican Party, to, to paraphrase the old Abba Eben quote that they said about the Palestinians, oftentimes never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. So, you know, you can get down to the five yard line and fail to punch it into the end zone. But certainly right now, the trend lines are, are looking propitious. So let's take that then, Will, and, and talk about your. Let, let me, let me, Go let ahead. me just yeah. say one thing on that, Josh. You know, it's fascinating to me. Uh, in the aftermath of the 2012 election, the sort of the, the wise talking heads in D.C. told us that what the Republican Party needed to do to become more electorally successful uh, was turn towards the libertarian right. You know, this idea of, of economic conservatism and social liberalism. And when you actually pull it out, when you look at the demographics of America, that libertarian right is consistently the smallest quadrant of American politics. There just aren't any people there. Uh, that's not how Americans think about the world. That's not what Americans believe. And the fact that we were sold that lie as Republicans for so long, that we have to disengage from social issues, that we should be softer on crime. Uh, it, it was just it was always a farce. And in 2016, you saw this incredible dynamic where where Trump ran on a platform of uh, of strict border enforcement, of reassessing bad trade deals, of confrontation with China that we had been told for a generation uh, were politically toxic, were the wrong policy approach, were the worst things in the world. He obviously rampaged through the Republican primary uh, and then won a presidential victory that we were told was impossible, winning states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania uh, that Republicans had been writing off for, for eight years. Uh, to me, that's the future, is focusing on issues that actually matter to people uh, as opposed to, you know, issues that matter to sort of D.C. think tanks. 
I, I mean, to say that I agree, I think would be an understatement. Um, you know, I, I just a shameless plug. I, I had an essay in the October issue of Deseret Magazine, which is a Salt Lake City-based publication affiliated with the Mormon Church, basically saying exactly what you just said, which is that if you go on an XY scatter plot and you look at the 2016 election, the percentage of voters, according to what they told pollsters who self-identify what you said, economically conservative, but socially liberal, it was literally 3.4% of the populace. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not making that up, actually. Um, conservatives and, and so-called populists were, were a strong plurality, perhaps an outright majority of the voter base. Certainly Donald Trump tapped into that in 2016. And I, I would agree with you that when you look at where Hispanic voters tell pollsters they're going, I think a lot of, you know, that has certainly a heck of a lot to do with it. But, you know, Will, in our, in our remaining time, I want to switch gears here a little bit. I teased at the beginning that you were super active in the confirmations during the Trump administration of multiple now Supreme Court justices, among them Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. If you go back to the 2016 election, Will, when, when many were, were skeptical of Trump at that time, of course, he famously joked about making his sister a Supreme Court justice, things like that. It, it was the infamous list of, of people that he would consider for the Supreme Court that I think really shocked a lot of conservatives to getting there to make sure that they would successfully get a conservative to replace Justice Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court there. And I, I kind of fast forward now to 2024 at least in my orbit, talking to people, a lot of people on the right who may be skeptical of Trump for X, Y, Z reasons, whether it's the indictments, whether it's the this, the that, he's getting old, this, whatever. They're looking at RFK or potentially just just sitting home. But I personally kind of come back to the same thing all over again. I kind of come back to the Supreme Court. So why don't you just talk a bit about that, about the importance you worked on these multiple confirmations of the justices. Talk about the Supreme Court and the judiciary just as a very important voting issue. Sure. So I was part of the outside political effort uh, that supported the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. I worked with a group called Judicial Crisis Network, which was the principal outside political group working to get President Trump's judges and justices confirmed. Uh, by the time the Barrett confirmation came around, I was actually back in St. Louis working as a, as a federal prosecutor, and I was detailed back to, to Maine Justice uh, to be part of the confirmation team in the Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Policy. Um, those were both, uh, in my view, do or die fights for the conservative movement. Um, President Trump talks about the Kavanaugh confirmation a lot. You had a ton of sort of D.C. insiders, Republican senators who the second that fight got hot, uh, wanted to back down and wanted to give in to the Michael Avenatti's of the world and sort of let the Democrats have their win and try again. Uh, that would have been totally the wrong approach. Uh, President Trump was right. And fortunately, our team was able to fight through and fight the smears and beat the smears. And today, as you know, Kavanaugh is a Supreme Court justice who's voted the right way on a ton of really important issues uh, like Roe v. Wade, uh, like the Second Amendment, uh, like race based affirmative action, religious liberty. I mean, go down the list. And Michael Avenatti is sitting in federal prison. Uh, with the Barrett confirmation, we saw the same dynamic all over again. You had sort of talking heads say that. You know, it's COVID and it's too close to the election. We shouldn't do this. Uh, instead, we fought through. We got her confirmed in record time. Uh, she was an outstanding nominee of unquestionable qualifications. And she's been a, a, a great justice. Um, it's conservatives often or Republicans oftentimes can't get out of their own way and take a victory uh, when it's presented. I think that approach is, is what we need to be taking into more areas uh, of political life and of, of sort of political conflict. 
Um, going forward, I mean, right now, we take it for granted that we have a pretty durable Supreme Court majority, uh, along with a lot of outstanding conservative lower court judges. Uh, that can change on a dime if Joe Biden's reelected. I mean, you think about, uh, I hate to even sort of speculate about this, but you think about Clarence Thomas is getting up there in years. Uh, Sam Alito, I think, is, is uh, I, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon, but we have to be thinking about uh, who the next generation of conservative leaders on the court are going to be. And I'm completely confident that if President Trump is reelected, if he's sitting in the White House and he gets a, you know, potentially one or two Supreme Court seats, we're going to be able to lock in a durable majority on that court, not just for another four years or eight years, but potentially for an entire generation. And what that opens up for us in terms of uh, defanging a lot of the mischief that that the left wing judiciary had had imposed on America, including on issues like crime uh, for, for a generation or more. It's just to me, it's really, really exciting. Um, and that's uh, I think it's going to be a motivating issue for conservative voters this cycle, the same way it was in 2016 when we had the Scalia seat open. And uh, I think that's one of the, the key things we need to keep in mind that, you know, a president's legacy is not just limited to his time in office uh, through appointments, through some durable policy shifts. Uh, presidencies live beyond their years. And I think that's true of the first Trump presidency. I think it'll be true of the second Trump presidency. Yeah. And just one concrete way of driving home the point, if you, if you think about the current composition of the court, the media oftentimes reports it as a six to three conservative court. Of course, that is including the, the chief justice, John Roberts, a, 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 as being a conservative. And it's true that he has voted the correct way in many high profile cases over the past few years. The affirmative action case, the majority opinion comes to mind. He had this bizarre concurrence in the Dobbs abortion case, but he still effectively came out the, the correct way there. The point is that we are one vote away from a legitimate situation where John Roberts is once again the deciding swing vote on the court. So it's really not this overwhelmingly, you know, eight to one conservative court, that this terrifying Frankenstein like figure that the mainstream media makes it out to be. So I just want to emphasize the point that back in 2020, Will, as you probably remember, I was very involved with Ted Cruz on his book at that year. And the title of the book was about the Supreme Court. It was titled One Vote Away. And in many ways here in 2024, we effectively remember Maine, one vote away. And staying on the issue of, of the court, Will, another thing that I, I very much have always admired about you, I think you and I are very passionate. Well, we, we share a lot of the same passions, but one of them is the pro-life issue. You and I are, are very staunchly pro-life Jews, um, and not every Jew, even conservative Jew in America that I meet is as passionate about this particular issue that you and I are, but we really have fought these battles through the years. And the Dobbs case obviously overturned Roe versus Wade in the summer of 2022, but as someone who's been so involved with the conservative legal movement for as many years as you have, I'm curious, Will, is there one case or one issue now that Roe versus Wade is a year and a half over, is in the ash heap of history? What is the one issue that the broader conservative legal movement, if there is one issue, should really, really hone their eyes in on now? Because Roe versus Wade, of course, was that white whale for you know four decades, and now we've done it. So what's next? You know, I think one of the objectives is is, uh, you know, getting the judiciary out of the way. I mean, the idea of judicial supremacy, the idea that everything should just be decided by the Supreme Court. I mean, that's something that the left pushed in the 60s when their radical policy agenda was such that it couldn't be achieved through the political branches. Uh, so I hope that the conservative movement doesn't get complacent now that we have a court like this. Uh, and, and doesn't lose sight of the fact that we need to be convincing the American people that our way is right 
and that the fight's not over. Uh, looking forward, I mean, just hemming in the power of the federal government, I think, is so important. Uh, separation of powers, structural structural constitutionalism, vertical and, and horizontal federalism. I'm a big states' rights guy. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a whole host of issues coming before the court in, in the next couple of years um, that, that are just really, really important. Uh, one thing I'd point out, you know, we have a situation right now where where mainly one left wing nonprofit crew has gone around the country and gotten left wing uh, office holders, left wing courts uh, to seriously consider the idea of kicking Donald Trump off the presidential ballot. Uh, I expect that, you know, I, I we're pre-recording this, but I expect that by the time this airs, um, the, the issue with the Colorado case, with the main case, are going to be squarely presented in front of the court. And I think it's just really important that the court doesn't allow uh, this politicization uh, of the law, this lawfare, um, to seriously impact Americans' confidence in our electoral system and seriously impact Americans' abilities to, to choose their own political leaders. Uh, I think the left's approach uh, to politics and the law is just so at variance with the Constitution, so at variance with the rule of law and our constitutional traditions, that I think it's just essential that that uh, that the Supreme Court does what it needs to do, uh, regardless of all this political weight that's being thrown at justices like Clarence Thomas, like Sam Alito, uh, by left-wing activists and their allies in the media. Look, what happened at the Colorado Supreme Court, what the main secretary of state are doing, I mean, this is just contemptuous lawfare chicanery of the of the highest order. I absolutely teed off on it on this show a few weeks back. And, you know, well, the point is, it doesn't matter if you're on the right. It doesn't matter who you support in a presidential primary. I mean, we have to be lockstep united on this stuff. The the future of the rule of law, the, we, we oppose the weaponization of law enforcement. This is just absolutely frankly, just republic threatening stuff. I actually do not think that that is exaggerating or embellishing it. I w- really would love to talk about this with, with you at great length. Unfortunately, we're, we're effectively out of time on the show, so we'll have to save that for the next time. But, you know, Will, it's been a real pleasure there. For those who do want to learn more about your current campaign for attorney general, where can they go? So our website is votesharf.com. You can find me on social media, on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Truth Social, at Will Sharf. Uh, really appreciate you having me on, Josh. Always a pleasure. And uh, let's let's keep the Jews against Soros train rolling. Jews against Soros, indeed, my friend. Thanks so much. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. The Josh Hammer Show. I cannot underscore enough the importance of this point. When it comes to the lawfare tactics that disproportionately right now are being carried out against Donald Trump, but certainly are not stopping there, it does not matter 
who you happen to support in the Republican presidential primary. It does not matter whether you support Trump, whether you support Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, God forbid, or anything like that. It really does not matter. If you are someone who cares about the rule of law, if you are someone who cares about the Constitution, you you simply have to oppose maneuvers such as the Colorado Supreme Court or the Maine Secretary of State trying to unilaterally determine the outcome of elections by invoking some harebrained 14th Amendment Section 3 argument about an insurrection that really was referring to the Civil War, but oh no, actually refers to some grandmothers with some selfie sticks and GoPros actually traipsing into the Capitol on January 6th. You, You have to care about this stuff. You simply do. You do not have a choice. And you know, I'm grateful for those out there, regardless of what your partisan political affiliations are, who are fighting this fight, because ultimately this is about preventing the federal government and the state governments alike from coming against their political opponents, as they have so often done over the past few years. And unless we put a stop to it, unless we put a stop to it right now. Think about where it's only going to go from here. The unraveling of this is something that I certainly do not want to spend a lot of time thinking about. I hope that you also do not want to spend a lot of time thinking about. Speaking of the U.S. Supreme Court, though, this point also cannot be underscored enough. I have a lot of friends, even on the right, who are talking a lot about possibly voting for RFK Jr. this fall if Trump's the nominee. They don't like Trump for this reason or that reason. They like the way that RFK talks about COVID. Look, I also like the way that RFK talks about COVID. I I happen to like the way RFK talks about COVID a heck of a lot more than the way that Donald Trump handled COVID in the final year of his presidency. But the importance of the U.S. Supreme Court in our current system of governance cannot be understated. We effectively live in a system right now of judicial supremacy. That is not the way that the Constitution's framers intended this to be. Many of our leading figures, Abraham Lincoln among them, understood that the president and the Congress have their own prerogative to interpret and enforce the Constitution as appropriate. But unfortunately, for the past 60, 70 years, guys, we are living in a system where no matter what a bare 5-4 majority of the U.S. Supreme Court says, that is the all-important sweeping, quote-unquote, law of the land. Again, that's not the way it was supposed to be. That is the way that it has been. And when you think about that, and when you think about the fact that John G. Roberts, the ever-mercurial swing justice, he's the chief justice and he is a swing vote, he is currently the sixth vote. Well, what happens if you go ahead out there to the polls and you want to go ahead then and vote for RFK, who, by the way, he's a Kennedy. He's a lifelong Democrat. Who the heck knows what his judicial philosophy is? Who the heck knows what his approach to constitutional interpretation is? So if you go out there and you vote for him and let's say that, God forbid, Joe Biden actually wins reelection, you know, are you going to be able to go home and sleep at night knowing that you gave Joe Biden the opportunity to nominate more Sonia Sotomayor's and Ketanji Brown Jackson's to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, what happens if, God forbid, you know, something happens to Sam Alito or Clarence Thomas there? Don't you want someone who you know there are the right people whispering in his ear, at least, when it comes to securing our first, second, fourth, tenth amendments, all the various rights and constitutional... Look, for me, guys, it is a slam dunk no-brainer there. I think anyone who didn't learn their lesson the hard way after 2016 probably needs to look and stare in the mirror for a long time there. I am sympathetic to those of you out there who are saying that you want to vote for RFK for this reason or that reason there. I ultimately do not think it carries water. you got to come home at the end of the day, pull the lever for 
the right guy who the nominee is to the vote. 